and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 56 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episode 55 before you listen to this episode. And now, first, Space Walk, Foskud 2, with Alexei Leonov and Pavel Belyaev, Part 2. We left off last episode on March 18, 1965, at 8.34 Universal Time, with Alexei Leonov in the Voskhod 2 airlock. Leonov opened the airlock's outer hatch. He was positioned on his back, and this orientation revealed the beauty of Earth in its entirety. His heart began to race as he pushed his upper body outside and saw the deep blue vista of the Mediterranean Sea. Fringed by the recognizable shapes of Greece and Italy, and farther east, the Crimea, the Caucasus Mountains, and the Volga River. By now he had pulled his feet onto the outer rim of the airlock, and, confident that his 5.35 meter tether would keep him securely anchored to the spacecraft, he pushed away. Humanity's first EVA had begun. The exit into space took place just before reaching the radio horizon of the ground station at Yevpatoria in the Crimea. It was this station that picked up the TV image of Leonov swimming in space. This image is what TV viewers all over the world saw later that day. Here is an audio clip of Leonov on his walk. Leonov began his spacewalk 94 minutes into the mission at the end of the first orbit. It lasted 12 minutes and 9 seconds beginning over north-central Africa and ending over eastern Siberia. Now it was time to go back in, but there was a problem. The Barracoot Golden Eagle spacesuit had ballooned, and Alexei was having trouble getting back into the airlock. This is how Leonov described his spacewalk experience. As I pull myself back toward the airlock, I heard Pasha talking to me. It's time to come back in. I realized I had been floating free in space for over ten minutes. With some reluctance, I acknowledged that it was time to re-enter the spacecraft. Our orbit would soon take us away from the sun and into darkness. It was then I realized how deformed my stiff spacesuit had become, owing to the lack of atmospheric pressure. My feet had pulled away from my boots and my fingers from the gloves attached to my sleeves, making it impossible to re-enter the airlock feet first. I had to find another way of getting back inside quickly, and the only way I could see to do this was pulling myself into the airlock gradually, head first. Even to do this, I would carefully have to bleed off some of the high-pressure oxygen in my suit via a valve in its lining. I knew I might be risking oxygen starvation, but I had no choice. 
If I did not re-enter the craft within the next 40 minutes, my life support would be spent anyway. The only solution was to reduce the pressure in my suit by opening the pressure valve and letting out a little oxygen at a time as I tried to inch inside the airlock. At first, I thought of reporting what I had planned to do to Mission Control, but I decided against it. I did not want to create nervousness on the ground, and anyway, I was the only one who could bring the situation under control. But I could feel my temperature rising dangerously high with a rush of heat from my feet traveling up my legs and arms due to the immense physical exertion from all the maneuvering. It was taking far longer than it was supposed to, even when I at last managed to pull myself entirely into the airlock, I had to perform another almost impossible maneuver. I had to curl my body around in order to close the airlock so Pasha could activate the mechanism to equalize the pressure between it and the spacecraft. Once Pasha was sure the hatch was closed and the pressure had equalized, he triggered the inner hatch open and I scrambled into the spacecraft, drenched with sweat, with my heart racing. The serious problems I had experienced when re-entering the spacecraft were thankfully not televised. From the moment our mission looked to be in jeopardy, transmissions from our spacecraft, which had been broadcast on both radio and television, were suddenly suspended without explanation. In their place, Mozart's Requiem was played again and again on state radio. My family was therefore spared the anxiety they would have to endure had they known how close I was to being stranded in space. They were also spared the trauma they would have suffered had they known the grave danger that Pasha and I faced in the hours that followed. For the difficulties I experienced re-entering the spacecraft were just the start of a series of dire emergencies that almost cost us our lives. It took Leonov 10 to 12 minutes to re-enter the airlock, and he got back inside just in time for the spacecraft's pass over the ground stations in the Soviet Far East. Many years later, Leonov described the reaction his family had during a spacewalk. When my four-year-old daughter, Vika saw me take my first steps in space, I later learned she hid her face in her hands and cried. What is he doing? What is he doing? She wailed. Please tell Daddy to get back inside. My elderly father was upset too, not understanding that the purpose of my mission was to show that man can survive in open space. He expressed his distress to journalists who had gathered at my parents' home. Why is he acting like a juvenile delinquent? He shouted in frustration. Everyone else can complete their mission properly inside the spacecraft. What is he doing clambering about outside? Somebody must tell him to get back inside immediately. He must be punished for this. My father's anger soon gave way to pride when he heard a live broadcast of President Leonid Brezhnev's message of congratulations 
beamed up to me from the Kremlin via mission control. This is what Brezhnev said, quote, We members of the Politburo are here sitting and watching what you are doing. We are proud of you. We wish you success. Take care. We await your safe arrival on Earth. End quote. Chief Designer Korolov stated after the EVA that Leonov could have remained outside for much longer than he did, while Chief Theoretician Keldish said that the EVA showed that future cosmonauts would find work in space easy. The government news agency TASS reported that outside the ship and returning, Leonov feels well. Doctors reported that Leonov nearly suffered a heat stroke. His core body temperature increased by 1.8 degrees C in 20 minutes. Leonov said he was up to his knees in sweat, which sloshed in the suit. Recently, Leonov said that he had a suicide pill to swallow had he been unable to re-enter the Voskhod capsule and Belyaev been forced to abandon him in orbit. Now back to the mission. Because of the suit ballooning, Leonov was unable to reach the shutter switch on his thigh for his chest-mounted camera. He could not take pictures of Voskhod too, nor was he able to recover the camera mounted on the airlock which recorded his EVA for posterity. The cosmonauts had some difficulty closing the inner hatch, but they eventually got it closed. After that, Leonov returned to his couch, and Belyayev fired pyrotechnic bolts to discard the airlock. On March 19th at 7 a.m. Universal Time, it was time to return to Earth. Five minutes before the retro engines were due to start dropping the cosmonauts out of orbit, Leonov checked the instruments and realized that the automatic guidance system for re-entry was not functioning correctly. He was forced to switch off the automatic landing system. This meant that the cosmonauts would have to manually orient the spacecraft before re-entry, and they would also have to select their landing point manually and decide the exact timing and duration of the retro rocket firing. The landing would need to be performed during the next orbit. As Voskhod 2 passed over the Crimea, the cosmonauts received the first ground control communication since the automatic guidance system failure. It was Yuri Gagarin on the radio, and it was clear that mission control thought Voskhod 2 had already landed. Belyaev told mission control, quote, we had to turn off the automatic landing system. We have only enough fuel to do one correction, and besides that, the indicator shows that the main engine for re-entry is very low on fuel. We can make only one attempt at re-entry. We are asking you, therefore, to go into emergency mode. Quote. As the navigator, it was Leonov's job to determine where Voskhod 2 would land. He had to choose somewhere as sparsely populated as possible. Leonov decided on an area close to the city of Perm, just west of the Ural Mountains. 
Even if he overshot Perm, they could still be able to land in the Soviet territory. Belyayev began orienting the spacecraft for re-entry, but this was not an easy task. In order to use the optical device necessary for orientation, Belyayev had to lean horizontally across both seats in the spacecraft while Leonov held him steady in front of the orientation porthole. Then they had to maneuver back into the correct positions in their seats very quickly so that the spacecraft's center of gravity was correct during the re-entry burn. As soon as Belyayev turned on the engines, the cosmonauts heard the roar and felt a strong jerk as the spacecraft slowed. The spacecraft was so cramped that the two cosmonauts, both wearing spacesuits, took 46 seconds to return to their seats and restore the correct center of gravity for descent. But then something went very wrong. The cosmonauts felt as if they were being dragged from behind, as if something was pulling them back. When the descent module began to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they started to feel gravity pulling them in the opposite direction. The instruments indicated they were experiencing 10 Gs. The G-force was so strong that some of the small blood vessels in the cosmonauts' eyes burst. Leonov looked out his window and realized with horror what was happening. A communications cable still connected the landing module with the orbital module, and as they rapidly entered the denser Earth atmosphere, the cable had become the two modules' common center of gravity, and they were spinning around it. The spinning eventually stopped at an altitude of about 100 kilometers when the connecting cable burnt through and the descent module slipped free. Then they felt a sharp jolt as the first drogue chute and then the landing chute deployed. Everything became very peaceful and very calm. They could hear and feel the wind whistling in the straps as the modules swung gently on the landing chute. Suddenly, everything became dark. They had entered cloud cover. Then there was a roaring as the landing engine ignited just above the ground to break the speed of descent. Finally, the spacecraft stopped. They had landed in two meters of thick snow. The 46-second delay of the cosmonauts returning to their seats and the delayed separation between the orbital and the descent module caused the spacecraft to land 386 kilometers from the intended landing zone in the inhospitable forest of the Upper Kama Upland, somewhere west of Solikamsk. Although Mission Control had no idea where the spacecraft had landed or whether Leonov and Belyayev had survived, their families were told that they were resting after having been recovered. Recall from episode 55, both cosmonauts were both familiar with the harsh climate and knew that bears and wolves made aggressive by mating season lived in the forest. At least the spacecraft carried a pistol and plenty of ammunition. After the descent module stopped moving, the cosmonauts decided to get out and try to assess their location. 
Belyea flipped the switch to open the landing hatch. The explosive bolts were activated and a smell of gunpowder filled the cabin. But though the hatch jerked, it failed to open. It was jammed against a big birch tree. The cosmonauts started rocking the hatch violently back and forth, trying to shift it clear of the tree. Finally, Belyaev managed to push the hatch away from the remains of the bolt, and it slid back and disappeared into the snow. With the hatch gone, both cosmonauts filled their lungs with a sudden blast of cold air. They threw their arms around each other, slapping each other on the back as best they could in their bulky spacesuits, relieved to have finally made it back to Earth. Next, they squeezed out through the hatch opening and sank up to their chins in snow. Looking up, they could see they were in the middle of a thick forest of fir and birch trees. Yanov tried to determine their approximate location by measuring the sun's height above the horizon, but it soon disappeared behind the clouds. The sky grew darker and it started to snow. The cosmonauts sought shelter back in their spacecraft. Now the cosmonauts began to wonder if their rescue signal had been received. It turned out that Moscow had not received it, but it had been picked up by listening posts as far away as Bonn, Germany. More importantly, a cargo plane flying close to the landing site had also picked it up. A search party had been dispatched, and late in the afternoon, the cosmonauts heard the sound of a helicopter approaching. They plowed through the thick snow into a clearing and stood waving their arms. Eager to help, the aircraft crew tossed a rope ladder down and signaled that they should grab it and climb aboard. But that was impossible. It was a flimsy ladder, and their spacesuits were too heavy and stiff to allow them to scale the rungs. As news of Voskhod's II's location was relayed from pilot to pilot in the area, more aircraft started to circle the landing site. A bottle of cognac was tossed out of one plane, but it broke when it landed. A blunt axe was thrown from another plane, and another aircraft dropped something more useful. Two pairs of wolfskin boots, thick pairs of trousers, and jackets. The clothes got caught in branches, but the cosmonauts managed to retrieve the warm boots. However, the sun was setting fast, and they realized that they would not be rescued that night. As it grew darker, the temperature dropped rapidly. The sweat that had filled Leonov's spacesuit while he was trying to re-enter the capsule was sloshing around in his boots up to his knees. To prevent frostbite, Leonov and Belyaev removed all their clothes and wrung the moisture out of their underwear. Then they had to pour out the liquid that had accumulated in their spacesuits. They went on to separate the rigid part of the suit from its softer lining and then put the softer part of the suits back on over their underwear and then pull their boots and gloves back on. Now they could move more easily. 
Next, they tried for a long time to pull their parachute out of the trees so it could be used as extra insulation, but they did not succeed. As it grew even darker, the temperature dropped further still, and it began to snow much more heavily. They decided to return to the capsule for the night, but they had nothing to cover the hole left by the detached hatch as the temperature plummeted to below minus 30 degrees C. The next morning they woke to the sound of an airplane circling overhead. Above the roar of the engines, they could just hear voices in the distance. Leonov fired a flare. Slowly a small group of men on skis came into view. Led by local guides, the rescue party included two doctors, a fellow cosmonaut, and a cameraman who began filming as soon as he saw them. It was to be another 24 hours before another team of rescuers could chop down enough trees to make a clearing big enough for a helicopter to land. The cosmonauts would have to survive another night in the wild, but this night was a great deal more comfortable than the first. The advanced party chopped wood and built a small log cabin and an enormous fire. They heated water to wash in a large tank flown in especially for the cosmonauts from Perm. And they laid out a supper of cheese, sausage, and bread. After three days with little food, it seemed like a feast. By the next morning, the cosmonauts were ready to ski nine kilometers to a clearing where a helicopter was standing by to fly them to Perm. From there, they flew to the launch site at Baikonur, where they disembarked to find a large group waiting for them, headed by Korolov and Yuri Gagarin. Next, the cosmonauts were driven in an open-top jeep to the town of Linsk, followed by a motorcade that stretched for several kilometers. A government committee was waiting their arrival, ready with many questions about their 26-hour flight. The cosmonauts then had to deliver reports on how their mission had gone. Leonov's brief was short and to the point. Quote, Provided with a spacesuit, man can survive and work in open space. Thank you for your attention. End quote. Here is an audio clip of the Soviet celebration of Voskhod 2. Nine astronauts have already walked down this red carpet. Now come the 10th and 11th. The commander of spaceship Voskhod 2, Pavel Belayev, reporting. I report to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR, and to the Council of Ministers of the USSR, that the flight of spaceship Voskhod 2 has been successfully completed. The experiment with the exit of man into space from a space vehicle has been fulfilled. The crew are in excellent condition and are ready to fulfill any task set by the party and government. Pilot of Voskhod 2, Colonel Belayev, reporting. 
the new space flight turned into new festivities for the whole country. To commemorate this great deed, a container with the documents and films about man's first exit into the open cosmos will be placed at the foot of this monument to Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Moscow. And people in the future will be able to see the picture of the unparalleled feat of Soviet science in the conquest of the stellar ocean of the universe. And here is a U.S. summary of the mission. Roshkod 2 follows on March 18, 1965. An hour and a half into the mission, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov floats out of the spacecraft through an inflatable airlock, becoming the first person to walk in space. Leonov stays outside the spacecraft for 12 minutes, but when he tries to re-enter the airlock, he has trouble getting back in because his suit has ballooned. He is forced to deflate the pressure of his suit just enough for him to bend the joints and get back inside. The Soviets had chalked up another space first, walking in space before the Americans. Washkod 2 is the last Soviet manned space flight for the next two years. Four long-duration Washkod flights are canceled, and attention is focused on the new Soyuz spacecraft, leaving space open for America's space program and Project Gemini. In March 1965, at the age of 30, Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov made the first spacewalk in history, beating out his U.S. rival Ed White on Gemini 4 by almost three months. Floating outside his Voskhod 2 capsule for 12 exhilarating minutes, Leonov describes his feelings as, quote, like a seagull with its wings outstretched, soaring high above the earth, end quote. In keeping with the secrecy of the Soviet space program, few people, not even his family, knew about the spacewalk ahead of time. Even less well-known was how close Lyonov and his crewmate, Pavel Boyev, came to dying on that mission. Once again, the Soviets had successfully stormed the heavens, yet this time was to be their program's high-water mark. As events would demonstrate, Moscow would fail to keep pace with the surging U.S. effort. The manned Gemini missions now were at hand, and with them, America would take the lead. to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. <laughs>